Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm speaking with Kara Robertson, author of the book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, A True Story. Kara, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. So let's start at the very beginning. Could you give readers who may remember the nursery rhyme, but not the details of the case, what we know happened on August 4th, 1892. On August 4th, 1892, two elderly people, a couple, Andrew and Abby Borden, were found murdered in their Fall River home. Fall River at the time was a leading textile manufacturing town, and the site was pretty horrifying. They had been, as newspapers reported, hacked to death. The police assumed that the perpetrator must be a crazed stranger who'd wandered in and hacked the Bordens to death. But the medical evidence showed that the victims had been killed about an hour and a half apart, Mrs. Borden first and then Mr. Borden downstairs. And that suggested that someone in the house might have been responsible And there were only two women known to be in the house at the time. One, the Irish housemaid, Bridget Sullivan, and two, the Andrew Borden's uh, younger daughter, Lizzie. So, Cara, this 1892 murder happened and has been the subject of a lot of fascination, so many books. But how did you get involved in this case and end up writing your first book about this trial? Well, I first began researching the Borden trial uh, when I was a student at Harvard, and I was looking around for a senior thesis topic. I was drawn to the mystery. It seemed to be both a whodunit and a whydunit. And I really liked the idea of using a public trial, a trial that had received massive press attention as a lens onto the gilded age of American history. And uh, I like the idea of working with a combination of primary sources, the trial transcripts, newspaper accounts, contemporary diaries. And in particular, it seemed that it would be possible to create a portrait of an era that way, in particular, the views of women and what women were capable of. And then I thought, all right, I'm done with it. Uh, And then I picked it up again when I was a law student, uh, and I became interested in, in some of the more technical questions like the evidence rulings at the trial. And again, I thought I would be done with it, but the case kept calling to me. uh, And then I decided to return to it in earnest. And would there be elements to this trial that would surprise us today that were, say, really specific to the time period? Was this the kind of trial that we may see today or were there substantial differences in, you mentioned the evidentiary hearing? Well, one thing that would would probably seem very familiar in the post-OJ era is the amount of the press coverage and the way in which the wider audience of newspaper readers were were essentially brought into the trial by columnists and reporters, and that the way in which the columnists and reporters themselves became many celebrities as a result of their coverage of the trial or because of their coverage of other trials. So there's a modernity to it in that sense. But there was a deep discomfort with the idea of a woman being charged with something like this. So in that sense, I think it would be unfamiliar that it seemed like something that had never happened before. You know, that a woman of her 
type. In other words, someone who ticked all the boxes of respectability. She was active in her local church, even being a Sunday school teacher. And she led a pretty much unremarkable life to that time. Uh, and so the idea that, that she might have killed her father and her stepmother seemed especially horrifying, more than just the horror of the murders themselves. Both class and gender played a very interesting role in this. And I think that you do a great job getting into it. One thing that I guess I hadn't read about in other accounts or seen gone into is that actually menstruation played a fairly large role in, you know, both the evidence that was there and there were these men who were bringing this to trial. They didn't really want to talk about it, but they had to, but they're skirting around it. And there are these scientific theories about how, well, you know, actually, depending on where she is in her cycle, it could turn her into a murderer. Maybe this is what did it. And I just found that very fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about the role that that played forensically and in the trial? Yeah, this is really striking for me, too. You know, these murders are very bloody. And so one of the key questions is, you know, could the murderer, whoever it was, have killed the Bordens and not been spattered with blood? And the medical consensus was that because of the proximity that, that there would be blood over certain parts, depending upon the exact position of the assailant. And Lizzie Borden had no blood at all visible anywhere on her person. And that was considered, you know, a great point in her defense. But there was a pail of menstrual towels or what were described as menstrual towels soaking in the basement. So it could have been said that they might have had some connection with the case in terms of a cleanup. But the police asked the doctor and the doctor assured them that it was okay. In other words, that he knew that Lizzie Borden was menstruating and so that you know, there was really basically nothing to see there, <laughs> chaps, you know, like look away. And at the trial, it almost seemed as if the prosecution and the defense had agreed not to discuss it, which I think would seem odd to us. For the defense, they simply wanted to use it to explain the presence of a, a minute blood spot that had been on an inner skirt of Lizzie Borden's. But they were also aware, or would have been aware, that menstruation was connected in the criminology of the day with horrible crimes. So the idea that it could have an effect on women um, that might be unpredictable. So if what they're looking for is a way to explain how someone who seemed completely unremarkable in so many ways did something so out of character, then menstruation seemed to offer an explanation and so one might have expected the prosecution to bring it up, but they didn't either. And let's talk a little bit more about both the defense and the prosecution. One of the ways that class played into this is Lizzie Borden had really a very enviable access to lawyers and very high-powered lawyers. Could you talk a little bit about the lawyers who were involved, both on the defense and the prosecution? Well, Lizzie Borden put her inheritance to use very quickly. She and her local lawyer, who was someone named Andrew Jennings, who had been her father's lawyer, hired a Boston lawyer named uh, Melvin Adams, and then perhaps most significantly, the former governor of Massachusetts, George Robinson, 
who was also a noted trial lawyer. And, you know, they gave her essentially the best defense money could buy. And how about the prosecution? Who was involved in bringing this case to trial? The prosecutor was a man named Hosea Milton, who was uh, the district attorney. And he was involved from the beginning, even though technically because it was a capital case, it should have been prosecuted by the attorney general of the state of Massachusetts, but he suffered from ill health. And so the task fell to Milton. He was reluctant to bring the case to trial. We have some correspondence between him and Pillsbury uh, that suggests he thought it might not be a winnable case. But he also didn't feel he could shirk his duty and believed that there was no way that Lizzie Borden could have been in the house and not known what was going on. One of the things I liked about your book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, is how much you do pull from the trial transcripts. And I have to say, you know, you mentioned that Knowlton felt reluctant to bring the case, didn't feel it was winnable. But as I was reading, some of the things that he is saying or some of the angles that he is unwilling to propose seemed to be torpedoing his own case a little bit. He seemed also to really resist the idea that this woman who was in her 30s, a religious woman, a white woman, a woman of at least upper middle class, if not very wealthy, could have had this sort of violence within her. And so he proposed this sort of Jekyll and Hyde element. Could you talk a little bit about how he attempted to explain to the jurors how a woman from this background could have done these two monstrous murders? As you say, he had a difficult task because sitting in the courtroom every day was this woman who seemed pretty normal, at least from the point of view of, you know, contemporary ideas of insanity. And she presented a reasonably sympathetic figure for the jurors. So Knowlton did his best to separate out all the factors that might have been a barrier to conviction. So he addressed the fact that she was a religious person by pointing out that there had been a case of a minister who killed someone about 50 years before this trial in the same area. He explained that women were capable of murder, and he did so by alluding to the case of a a woman who was not of Lizzie Borden's class, um, but who had poisoned members of her own family. And he tried to do that to make it palatable, you know, to think that if he if he separated out all those difficult barriers, then the jury might just be able to look at what he saw as the evidence, which is to say what he considered to be Lizzie Borden's exclusive opportunity. But one of the biggest stumbling blocks to the prosecution was that it was reluctant to make the argument that Lizzie Borden really wanted to kill her father. That really struck me, too. You even have Knowlton referring to the far sadder murder of her father. Everyone seemed to really agree that, well, the real tragedy was the death of her father. And surely, you know, well, maybe she wanted to kill her stepmother, but she she couldn't have wanted to kill her father. Could you talk a little bit about that? I found that fascinating that there, you know, there were two victims. They were killed an hour and a half apart. But it was stunning to me kind of the difference they really saw between those two murders, between the murder of the stepmother and the murder of the father. Right. The prosecution would have had an easier case if it had just been Mrs. Borden. And they chose to focus on the motive that Lizzie Borden might have had for killing her stepmother in particular, that there had been 
a dispute about property and that there was ill feeling in general. Uh, and the idea that that it was sort of a feminine issue that, you know, women are like that. And so the idea is that somehow the hatred grew and she decided to kill her stepmother and then essentially just botched her plan, you know, wasn't able to get out in time. And so ended up essentially having to kill her father because she couldn't face him given what she what she'd done to her stepmother. And that's essentially the prosecution argument. And it's it's a little bit weak, <laughs> given that Elizabeth Gordon had a strong money motive to kill both. And the order of the death is significant. If Mrs. Borden had died after Mr. Borden, then her estate would have inherited her um, widow's share. But given that the order was clear that Abby's killed first and then Andrew is killed second, all of the estate goes to the daughters. Just to circle back to the kind of evidence that was produced at trial, I really was both impressed and a little surprised by the amount of forensic evidence that was used. Um, they even brought the the skulls of the deceased into the courtroom for the jurors to see and were, you know, one of the medical experts who was called to testify was, you know, sort of cheerfully waving them around, it sounded like. <laughs> were you surprised by the amount of medical testimony and forensic evidence, much of which we would still accept in the court today, was being used back in, you know, the 1890s? Yes. As long as you don't expect it to really just solve the case, it's remarkable how much they were able to use. I think, you know, I think it's a frustration for those of us who look back on it and think, oh, well, certainly, surely there would have been DNA evidence or something that that would have made this an easy case one way or the other. It would have ruled her in or ruled her out. But within the limits of their time, the police did a pretty good job of collecting material. They picked up carpet samples and molding and they brought in the uh, sofa on which Mr. Borden was killed, and they examined the digestive systems of the Bordens to ascertain the time of death, and also to make sure that they weren't poisoned, because Lizzie Borden was alleged to have tried to buy poison on the day before the murders, which is a piece of evidence that the prosecution dearly wanted to use to show intent, but was not permitted by the judges to be put before the jury. So you yourself are now an attorney. You weren't when you first started your interest in this case. But now, looking back, of course, I think all my listeners are going to want to know, as someone who has really examined the case, who has gone through the trial transcripts, you know, who you think done it. But I also am interested in hearing your perspective as a lawyer, where you think the strongest elements of the case were both for and against the idea that Lizzie Borden is the one who killed her parents. Well, the prosecution has a very strong circumstantial case. You know, it's essentially a locked room mystery. There are only two people who are known to be in the house at the time of the murders. It's possible that an outsider was able to get in and hide, uh, but the time between the murders, the amount, the interval between the murders, the hour and a half makes that seem quite unlikely given that the house was not very big and that person would have had to avoid the two women who were in the house. We know that the housemaid was outside washing windows, was seen doing that at the time that Abby or Mrs. Borden was killed. And she seemed to, at least according also to Lizzie Borden, to be up in her attic room at the time that Mr. Borden was killed. 
Lizzie, by contrast, gave shifting accounts of where she was. And she was someone who had a pretty clear motive. And so for the prosecution, it seemed fairly straightforward. But they had to reckon with the problem of Lizzie Borden's apparent normality and the assumptions that women didn't commit those kinds of violent crimes via an axe or a hatchet. Had it been a poison case, it would have been a lot easier for them because poison is considered to be a women's weapon. But the idea that an otherwise respectable woman would suddenly pick up a hatchet or an axe and kill her father and stepmother was really too much to believe. And so the defense spent most of its time focusing on the image of Lizzie Borden, tried to undermine the idea that there had been any misunderstanding that was more than might happen in other families, pointed to random, suspicious-looking characters who had been seen in the vicinity, even though none of them were seen actually going into the house or that close to the house, and just said, look, you know, your job isn't to solve the mystery. Your job is just to say whether you think that this particular woman did this beyond a reasonable doubt. And so in that sense, it was a tough case. And do you think that if you were on the jury back then, you would have voted to convict? (laughs) Uh, Well, of course, I know things that the jurors didn't know. And uh, that Mm -hmm. gets to the the most important pieces of evidence that were excluded. The first was Lizzie Borden's attempt to buy poison the day before the murders. The Bordens had suffered from food poisoning, and the prosecution argued that essentially this gave Lizzie Borden an idea that she thought, all right, there's been food poisoning, so let me uh, help along the poisoning by adding a little prussic acid. She was unable to get the prussic acid, which meant that, according to the prosecution, she had to turn to a readily available household implement. And it had the happy coincidence of making it explicable. Why would a woman otherwise use such a male weapon, you know, of a hatchet or an axe? But their argument was that this this showed intent. And the defense said, look, prussic acid has innocent uses. We use household poisons all the time. Uh, and so this is just going to be inflammatory. And of course, part of the reason it seems so inflammatory is is precisely because poison seemed to be a woman's weapon. And the judges agreed. So because the prosecution couldn't show that prussic acid had no innocent uses, they decided not to let it in. And then the second important evidentiary ruling that the defense won was the exclusion of Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony. It's the only testimony we have from her under oath. And she gave, as I said before, conflicting accounts of where she'd been. And that that, according to the prosecution, showed consciousness of guilt. The defense argued that effectively that she was entrapped, that they had been intending to arrest her. And they just waited to make sure that she testified under oath before they served the warrant. And then they also noted that she had been taking morphine. And so her answers were probably unreliable. But those two things, you know, one obviously shows intent and punctures the defense claim that Lizzie Borden was just an innocent bystander who happened to be in the house and miraculously avoided 
the real assailant. And two, the story that she told several people, which shifted, that gives, again, a different cast to the story. So you've come to look at this case and this trial over a few different periods in your own life. Has your perspective on this case shifted from the time that you were a senior at Harvard, writing your senior thesis? Did your opinion of what happened change in any material way? Did you become more convinced of her guilt or less convinced? Well, I found to actually tell the story properly, you know, from the beginning through the curious afterlife of the case, that I had to keep my mind as open as possible and allow myself to be, you know, moved by the evidence in one direction and then the other. So I think on some level, I became a little more open-minded as I proceeded. When I first looked at the case, it just, it seemed like a pretty clear sense of a culture just not wanting to accept that someone who was like Lizzie Borden could have done something like that. And so it seemed to be a story about the limitations of that era. Speaking of the limitations of that era, I found myself really surprised learning the details of the case that Bridget Sullivan, the maid who is 26 years old, this Irish Catholic girl, didn't end up under more suspicion for the crime because that seems to be a story that the society would be more comfortable with, the story of the help that kills the master of the house and the mistress of the house. That That's something that people did seem pretty comfortable with. What allowed Bridget Sullivan to make it through without what you would kind of assume would make her the default suspect for these murders. Right. She she is terrified for exactly that reason. Uh, I think not just that she's in a house where two people have been violently murdered, but also that she might well be a suspect. So she's saved essentially by two things, that, that uh, Abby Borden told her to wash the windows outside. So she's seen by others performing that task at the time that Abby was murdered. So she couldn't have committed that murder. And the assumption is that whoever killed Mrs. Borden also killed Mr. Borden. It would be a very big coincidence. Right. Right. Though there are people who argue that. <laughs> there, there's every possible explanation under the sun to this case. And one of the other pieces of it, interestingly for me, is that uh, Lizzie Borden essentially saves her. You know, that in her version of the story that she puts Bridget Sullivan out of the way at the relevant time. So Bridget Sullivan is spared from imprisonment, though there are people who argue about that. You know, there are many people who write into the chief of police and essentially say, why on earth are you not? arresting the servant girl. We all know what that class of people is like. And there are also people who write in and say that if it had been a mill hand who was suspected as opposed to the daughter of the house, then you wouldn't stand on ceremony, uh, that you wouldn't be dragging this out so long. So uh, the reaction to both, the suspicion of both women, revealed a lot about the class tensions in Fall River. So you have now spent you know, almost two decades, I think, with this case, uh, and it's haunted you for this long. Do you think you have a new project in mind, or is this going to stay with you? 
Did you identify <laughs> the next book, do you think? <laughs> um, I, I am interested in another uh, unsolved legal case, or at least at least one where there there is continuing controversy. I, I'm ready to end my long association with Lizzie Borden's trial. Now, a group of people who didn't get to end their association with Lizzie Borden was Fall River, Massachusetts. What do we maybe not understand today about what life in Fall River was like and how that in itself impacted the trial? Like many mill towns of that era, it was a highly stratified society. And Fall River had the extra topographical feature of rising in steep increments from the river, uh, which is part of the reason that it was located there, you know, because of the you needed the water power for the mills. And so it effectively literalized the social order. The immigrants or the recent recently arrived tended to live near the mill, which is to say in the lower levels of the city. The business was conducted in in the area that was called the flats, and that was also where the middle class lived for the most part, particularly professional Irish Catholics or French Canadians. Sometimes part of the uh, Yankee elite that had owned the city or owned the mills rather would be there, but typically that that was that was a sign of um, being uh, on the way down. And then there was an elite residential district called the Hill, which was literally, as the name would suggest, higher than the rest of the town. And one of the dissatisfactions in the Borton household was that Lizzie and her sister, Emma, apparently wanted to live on the hill, which is where people that they thought were more like them would live. In other words, their cousins. And Lizzie did end up doing that, didn't she? Right. At the end of the trial, the her defense lawyer, the former governor, George Robinson, makes an impassioned plea asking the jury to let her go home and be Lizzie Borden in that bloodstained and wrecked house in which she had spent so many of her days. And uh, shortly after being acquitted, she and her sister moved to a much grander house in the elite residential district of Fall River and assumed a life that may well have been the one that she wanted all along. One thing I found, I'm not going to say funny because none of this is really funny, but curious is some of the residents, it seems to me, and I'm reading into this, but the way you describe it, seem to feel like, well, we let you off of murder, but now you demand to live among us? Like, this is just unseemly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to have you convicted. It's another thing to ask you for tea. It, it does seem almost anthropological in its explanation that, you know, that the uh, elite of Fall River banded together to support her when she was accused of something that would have, that reflected badly on the town and also threatened, well, you could say threatened the social order. I don't think that's too strong, given how uh, distressing it was to think that someone like her could have committed that particular kind of crime. But then she's, you know, almost immediately frozen out of her church, which is the same church whose spiritual leaders have provided the bedrock of her support. And that set the tone for her treatment in the polite circles of the town. I've always thought it was one of the most intriguing aspects of her character that she chose to stay in Fall River, shunned by the people she most wished to know, 
rather than live out her life in you know comfortable anonymity elsewhere. But yeah, it's it's hard to decide in my own mind if that reaction makes me feel like, oh, well, she's staying because she doesn't feel she's done anything wrong. She didn't do the murders or whether she just is so cold. And they, it is also hard to know, based on the description from the 19th century of her behavior, would we consider her cold today? Would we just consider her reserved? But to make the decision to stay in that town and live out her whole life there, it, it is, it's a curious decision, like you said. Uh, I think it shows her nerve, the self-possession that she displayed at trial and that people considered so remarkable, and also maybe her parochialism. You know, Fall River was was essentially her universe, and I think the height of her ambition was to live in the better part of it, not really to conquer new worlds. So she's made this curious decision, and it seems curious to us today and to the people of her time. Would you look at Lizzie Borden? How much were you able to actually tell about her and how much of her really remains a mystery to you, even outside whether or not she committed this murder? She is a cipher. Uh, and that puzzles both her contemporaries and I think it puzzles uh, later interpreters. So for her contemporaries, they were keen to use that blankness or that seeming sphinx-like quality to project what they thought the necessary character of a murderer might be so that they saw in the self-possession a disturbing coolness that was really unfeminine. And for those people who supported her, they thought, well, this is the bearing of a lady who has been affronted with this horrifying accusation and, of course, has just lost her father. <laughs> so she's behaving you know, with the dignity and the grit that you expect you know, from American womanhood. Uh, and then I think the same thing happens with subsequent interpretations so that people, you know, inevitably always bring their own biases and preoccupations to a case like this. But the Sphinx-like quality of Lizzie Borden means that, you know, every generation essentially gets its own Lizzie, that it tells us more about the anxieties of the chroniclers than any kind of essential truth about the mystery that we see, for example, you know, in the 1990s, it suddenly seemed very obvious to many people that some kind of sexual abuse would explain both the savagery of the murders and the identity of the killer. Nothing new, uh, you know, from the point of view of actual evidence had come to light. But the way that people saw the central facts of the case suddenly just changed. And I think that there's a slipperiness to Lizzie Borden and there's a desire to pin her down. And unfortunately, most of what we know about her uh, is from after the trial. And so it's very tempting to read or overread the evidence um, and think that we understand exactly who she was based on a lot of times just gossip. And you end the book on something that I find very intriguing, which is that actually there may be more evidence available that could potentially provide maybe a window into what she was really thinking or what was really going on behind the scenes. Could you talk a little bit about that evidence and why we haven't seen it in the light of day? Right. This is for the law audience. The chief defense counsel, George Robinson, founded a firm and he died unexpectedly a few years after the trial. 
and his files were intact. And along the way, presumably most were discarded. But the law firm, which still exists, has kept his files on Lizzie Borden. Uh, And they've taken the position, based on advice from the Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers, that they not only may not disclose the files themselves, but they may not even describe what is in the files because they have to remain confidential. And so it's an odd conundrum. In other words, they believe that they're historically important, and so they've been preserved in a way that other files from that era in the firm's history have not. And yet their position is that they can never share them. Well, maybe if the firm ever changes its position, we'll have the sequel to your book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. And if any of my readers are interested in checking out the book, maybe interacting with you, where should they go? Uh, They should go to the website in which they can cast a vote on whether or not they think that Lizzie Borden was guilty or innocent, and they can also post comments that will get to me. Uh, The website's trialoflizzieborden.com. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast listening service. That's a big help for us.